Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. M-S-W Media. So, Renato, is special counsel Jack Smith finally in the endgame of the Mar-a-Lago case? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. Okay. So the scuttlebutt on the street this past week is that special counsel Jack Smith is ready to indict Trump. And this is because Trump, his camp leaked a letter that they wrote to Attorney General Merrick Garland asking for an audience with him to, I guess, make their case on why he shouldn't be indicted. And so I think there was that it was deduced that, I guess, maybe that he somehow received a target letter or otherwise had been informed that an indictment was imminent. And I'm wondering whether you think that's the correct interpretation or if this is another psyop by Trump, because, of course, we know that in New York, he also claimed that he was just about to be indicted. He really was so, first of all, I got to say, Asha, that letter does not resemble anything I've ever seen in terms of <laughs> communications with the prosecutor before. It's more like a truth, social truth, uh, kind of under, with letterhead around it rather than an actual communication. So I, I was surprised it wasn't in all caps. Yeah, right. There's no exc- exclamation points. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a little bizarre. Um uh, you know, it is very commonplace. In fact, it is, I would say, expected that before a defendant is charged by a prosecutor, the prosecutor usually lets the defense attorney know. Defense attorneys usually come in and they make what's called a pitch to some sort of group of supervisors um, in that office to basically try to convince them that actually they're making a big mistake and that their guy doesn't deserve to be charged and there's all these things they're missing and so on and so forth. It does not always happen. Um, I actually, I had a case that was prosecuted by Maine Justice and they, I told them my client was innocent and they didn't want to talk to him. I don't always let you talk to me about it. It's very bizarre. Uh, so it does happen from time to time where they're like, yeah, we don't care about what you have to say. But usually, customarily, that happens. And is that like a formality? Because I kind of feel like if the Justice Department is at the point of indicting, they have at that point amassed a lot of evidence. So in other words, what could possibly happen in that conversation at the 11th hour where they're like, oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. We're just, you know, this would just be taking it too far. We got it wrong or something like that. In other words, what would there be some smoking gun that 
the defendant comes forward with or what would persuade the Justice Department to not follow through at that stage? Smart question. A very good question. You're right. It's usually a long shot, Ash. I agree with you. Um, but there's a few things that can that can uh, change, be game changers. So one thing is that this is often the first opportunity that the defense has to speak with some supervisor, somebody who's not the attorneys who are working the case. And sometimes the attorneys working the case ha- are zealous. They have a few of the facts that slanted and the defense can convince the supervisory chain that like this case is a lot tougher than you think. Like you're going to have a very difficult trial on your hands. Like Asha is fantastic, but the way she's describing the the evidence is not quite right. Like, you know, she's missed this piece here or that, or, you know, while we respect her view of this, this, so you do that sort of thing that can be a real game changer. And Often what that just does is it delays the inevitable. They end up coming back with a slightly altered set of charges and they go get more evidence. And, you know, that often makes the defense mad, but that's often the result there. But that that can be at times a big game changer. Sometimes the defense will come up with a potential resolution in um, in concert with that, where they'll say, look, I understand that you think that my guy who showed up to um, with a million dollars in cash was actually trying to launder drug proceeds, but actually he thought that he was evading currency require reporting requirements. You know, here's a different crime that's got lower penalties that we think is a more appropriate plea and the evidence fits or whatever, something like that. Uh, but all, but often, most of the time, most of the time, these pitches are, you know, my client's a fantastic person. You know, Donald Trump has got great charitable uh, foundation. Uh, he's a great father. You know, he's very old. Uh, he's going to die in prison. You know, all of these things. And it doesn't persuade anybody. That's usually how these go. But you have to kind of go through the motions to take your shot anyways. It's like play the lottery or something, you know, just in case. And that makes sense for the ordinary defendant. One assumes, however that the Justice Department may have taken into account all of the, in other words, the, the former president of the United States likely has already gotten all of the benefit of the doubt of, in terms of all of the reasons to not charge him, unlike your ordinary defendant, um, because of just the uphill battle that it is uh, on his face because of who he is. And as you said, that letter is just weird. And it looks performative to me and not like a genuine attempt to somehow make a case to prosecutors. What a fancy lawyer word, performative. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's how we know you went to the Yale Law School, Asha. Um, yeah. Yes. So, yes, but it's a, yeah, it was, it's, it's more meant to uh, send a signal, perhaps his donors or his supporters or whatever. I think that's that's potentially correct. I've also heard rumblings. I mean, I can't reveal. I mean, I've been getting, I'm, I don't know about you, but I've been getting calls off the record calls from various reporters and so on. I've got, I, I, my understanding is, I could be wrong, but my understanding from what I hear is that, that there, this was not prompted by a specific communication from Smith, where like Smith did not say, like, hey, come on and make a pitch, which often happens. Like, hey, we're going to indict you in two weeks if now's the time. I, he didn't do that. So I do think that this was 
you know, there's some freaking out internally in Trump world. And I will note there was an interesting article in Rolling Stone, which has had like a number of scoops from within the Trump thinking, legal yeah, camp. Yeah, 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 they have. Uh-huh. They clearly got some mole in there, like there's some right. paralegal who loves Rolling Stone. Maybe he's getting a signed <laughs> guitar or something in exchange for uh, some some tips. But in any event, they said that Trump's lawyers have informed him that he is going to be indicted, right? And then we also saw one of his lawyers quit, which is sort of like there was having some difference of opinion. My understanding is that there are some people in the Trump camp who are convinced he's not going to get charged, but those are mostly clowns who don't know anything about criminal law, and that the dominant uh, group there is convinced he's going to be charged, which I think is consistent with everything you and I know. Um, you know, if, if there was going to be a game changer, I mean, one thing I will just say, I mean, I have been out there. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm over my skis or right above them. Um, saying, I think he's going to get indicted for, by Jack Smith, uh, for this Mar-a-Lago thing, which is a new territory for me to be in. I'm really ahead of the game on that stuff. I'm usually pretty cautious, but there's so much, so much pointing to that and the evidence looks so strong. But I will say, though, you know, this is a special case, as you point out, Asha. I mean, if he doesn't, um, it's purely because of some something that's very unique to the president. I doubt that's the case here, but you never know. You know, if there was going to be some move by Trump that was going to derail things, I actually think it would become in one of two categories, either some unconsidered evidence or defense that like, wow, like, you know, we actually have videotape of him back in, you know, 2020 moving his hand and saying this is all declassified or, you know, or, um, you know, he sent a bunch of contemporaneous uh, you know letters saying that or like we, we're going to come in and do it. We're willing to do a plea to X but not why. And like, that would blow, like that might blow somebody's mind. Like we're willing to plead to anything. Like I think Jack Smith would have to seriously consider that, but I I don't think any of those things are going to happen. I think he's going to get charged. He's going to delay this um, until after the election. We know that the, the Manhattan DA case is going to be tried in March. I can't imagine of 20, uh, 24. So I I just can't imagine that this goes before that. And, and realistically, um, it'll it'll probably be after the election. And what do you think the charges might be? Just obstruction, or do you think Espionage Act also? I think there will be. Yeah, I think there are going to be crimes related to the willful retention of of defense material as well, for sure. I, I don't see what, what Smith. I I know that some people have said that it's cleaner, better to focus on the obstruction. I think he'll just use that as you know he'll make that a very centerpiece of the of of the indictment and i think that will certainly be you know central to the conspiracy but i would be surprised if he doesn't include um you know charges related to the hand to the willful retention of classified material and one thing i just want to say because there's a lot of people who are like eh, either i've seen some comments like "Eh, i believe it when i see it or "Eh, he's already indicted um there is such a gulf of difference between the Manhattan DA case and this case, like I, 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 you know, as a criminal defense attorney, I don't really, the Manhattan DA case is like an eh kind of case. It's the lowest level felony. Every, all my friends who practice in Manhattan are like, he's not even going to get prison time. No one would get prison time for that. Um, You know, it's, it's kind of an uphill battle and there's some oddities to it. Um, I won't say uphill battle, but it's a challenge. There's some challenges to it. 
the the Jack Smith cases, like the Justice Department, a really straightforward case, big time penalties. People go to prison for a long time for doing this. Pretty serious stuff. Yeah, and it also seems like the espionage, the, that particular provision of the Espionage Act, seven ninety three e. I think it is, 18 U.S.C. 793E, the willful retention, uh, would dovetail with the obstruction, right? Because I think one of the elements is that to show, you know, the willful retention involves not turning over the documents after it, there has been a demand by an official for their return. In other words... Yeah, it's sort of like the obstruction in some ways is is kind of baked into, or or the willful retention, I guess, is baked into the obstruction part of it, if that makes yeah. sense. So that that does seem like it makes sense to me because I always thought maybe he'll only charge obstruction as a way to very clearly distinguish it from the Biden or Pence or whatever situations where those people, where they have discovered that they are in possession of classified information, right? Because they, that they, those individuals clearly cooperated, turned it over. They're like, take it, come search, whatever. Um, but I do think that particular provision of the Espionage Act sort of implies a certain level of maybe not, not necessarily obstruction itself, but like, um, defiance of the uh, preventing the return of the information. Yeah. And I just think the fact pattern here is so um, egregious in that regard. I mean, really what what the feature, if I was going to describe this is just, I think the, the justice department um, and Farah before that went bent over backwards to treat Trump with kid gloves. And I think in the process of doing so made the case very, very easy. For, for Smith to prosecute. You know, you got letters that went to Trump, a personal visit from the DOJ and FBI. Of course, as we know, I think we discussed this briefly last week. Um, uh, there was uh, some movement of boxes maybe right before that visit, but that, you know, there's that. And then obviously, you know, there was the uh, false affidavit or uh, false, you know, the affidavit containing false statements and then uh, a raid, right? An execution of a search warrant. I mean, a pretty amazing set of circumstances. So, and then on top of that, after all of that, it's not like he's like, "Oh, I had no idea that it was here." Like he literally sued to keep it. <laughs> yeah, I know <laughs> that was a really dumb move. He literally sued to keep it. I think that was a really dumb move, and I, I wonder if that will show up as a part. Like, you know, yes, he was using legal process, but it was obviously like a completely, you know, cockamamie. Um, you know, legal theory that he was he was using, but he was explicitly arguing that they were his, that they were. I mean, he was it was a didn't make sense. He was simultaneously arguing that they were subject to executive privilege and they were also his personal records. But in any case, and it seemed it was very desperately trying to retain them in some fashion. Yeah, and I mean the the special master. Uh, went out of his way to require them for every single document to state, like he had to, they had to have a spreadsheet and they had to state, is this his personal property? Is this a presidential record? Like he, they had to take a position gra- on a granular level for each document. And I think, 
you got to think the Justice Department is going to argue that that precludes Trump from taking the opposite position later. I mean, they certainly at least have an argument. Um, and I, I think it's just not where you want to be. I know at the time, my my reaction was as a defense attorney, I never want to take a position on anything until I see all the evidence. <laughs> because, you know, you don't take your client's word for it on day one. Like, oh, sure, I know how everything plays out. No, you wait and see what the evidence looks like and take your position at the end. So, yeah, they're in trouble with that. I think the, the, the public statements by Trump are perhaps the most problematic. You know, interviews with Hannity where he's just like, you know, these are my documents, and I could have shown them to people if I wanted to. Nixon got sixty million dollars for them. Yeah, I could have. De- I could could have declassified it with my mind and all of that. I mean, it just puts him in a spot. I mean, if I would seriously consider if I was Smith playing that tape just to make it hard for Trump not to take the stand. Yeah. If Trump doesn't take the stand, the jury is going to hear that and they're going to it's going to remind them that he didn't say anything. And that's going to be what they're left with. And it's just so bizarre. Just imagine like in the Trump multiverse where multiverse (laughs) is this like the Council of Trump's like the Council of Kings? Well, this is like the alternate universe where Trump where the, the search warrant is executed. He never says anything. Mm hmm. Except, I mean, except tweeting that this was, you know, and unfair and 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 maybe even like I had no idea, like I'm the president, like I don't pack my boxes, like you know who knew they were there, and just like never like fought it. I it seems like this might have been a tougher battle. Oh, a lot tougher. So if if let's say let's just say that we rewind. And I took control, uh, like Trump was lobotomized and just was sitting there and didn't do anything. And I was controlling the legal strategy on the day of the raid. Then I would put out a statement, not him, me, saying, you know, he, look, obviously there's a lot of boxes and lots of moving, you know, parts coming out of the White House. He's got all these properties. He's only, you know, he's not there all the time. He doesn't really know. And, you know, he wants to resolve this. And like, obviously we shouldn't be, you know, he's so, you know, he obviously he's so uh, disappointed that these things were found, but he wants to cooperate in any way he can. And he tried his best and that sort of thing. And put the, it would make it seem, you know, just play the unfairness car. This is so unfair. Now, but the reality is that a better time to, to morph, if we're going to do like the back to the future, like, and we're, you know, I'm Biff or whatever, I'm going back. Um, and, and if you're Biff, you want to go back to like um, when the, uh, you know, when the DOJ and FBI came the first time, because there, any competent. With the subpoena. Right. Any competent lawyer is like, okay, we can't screw around here. We need to dig in. We need to search through everything. We, we can't play games. If you do, you're going to get you're going to end up going to prison and I'm going to go to prison with you. We're not doing that. And that's I mean, that happened. That's like a regular occurrence. So, you know, people are like, what do you do all the time? Like a lot of what I do is big company gets a subpoena and like some employee screwed it up. And it's like, okay, we got to call in Renato and I'll come in, uh, you know, with some other lawyers. And it's like, okay, we're going to do this the right way. And placate the FBI or the SEC or whoever it is, and then we move on to the next case. Um, yeah. that, that's what would have been a better time. 
Well, and and I think the fact that that didn't happen, I mean, some of it you can talk up to Trump's personality, but I really do think, and, you know, Andrew Weissman for a while was just tweeting this out, like, it's been 30 days, it's been 60 days, and we still don't know why he retained those documents. And I think that as time has gone on and he's engaged in all of these different maneuvers, insisted that they're his, like... You just like that to the motive to me, and I know there are going to be listeners who are like, well, it's obvious he was going to sell it to the Saudis. I mean, maybe, I don't know, but it's just like, I would just love to get the the real, like, I would love the Colonel Jessup moment. <laughs> that never happens just, in real life, Asha. I know, but I want it. I want it. <laughs> like, you know, you know, God damn it. Yeah, I sold it to the Saudis or whatever. Like, I want to hear it come out of his mouth. Like, I want to hear why, what he wanted to do with those because he's not sentimental let's be honest like he's not keep i mean maybe with the kim jong-un love letters possibly but like with everything else um you know it's transactional and i think that they're like what what did he want with it like what did he expect was going to happen and why was he why was he so insistent on ensuring that they stayed in his possession all right, I'm going to go back to my usual sad panda mode. Mm. And I'm going to give you, like, here's, like, the, the Occam's razor, like, to me, like, the base level. Trump likes to feel important, likes to brag to people. Isn't it possible that he just had these kept these classified documents because they were cool and he could show people at Mar-a-Lago, like, look at what I got. I was the president and I can show you where all the nuclear bombs are, you know? Wow. That can explain, I think, the initial part. I don't think that explains the lengths to which he has gone to to keep them in his possession. You don't think it's just because he's like, who are these people telling me what to do? Uh, these are Maybe. mine. I, <laughs> it's mm, all mine. I don't know. Mm, I think I, I don't know. know. That doesn't. I go with eating chess pieces. I mean, all the e- time that, like that that's guy. an ego. I there, that's the ego um, explanation. I I mean, I feel like there has to be a greed or leverage piece here, and the greed is the obvious one. You know, some people are like, "Oh, he's going to make money," but I think leverage is really important because you know m- we know that many of these classified documents that he had were briefings of foreign leaders, like, which would have been really candid assessments of, Mm -hmm. you know, who, you know, their weaknesses or vulnerabilities or whatever, um, you know, our intelligence agencies might have assessed about them. And he is very attuned to that in terms of understanding what other people's Achilles heels are and how he can exploit them. And we saw this with, you know, President Zelensky with Ukraine, right? Um, So I, I don't know, like, I'm just, I wish... You know, I hope maybe after it all, like, he writes the If I Did It book. (laughs) Which, of course, is a great (laughs) reference to O.J. Simpson, who wrote If I Did It. And then the dumbass (laughs) chose to publish it. And the victim's family's like, hey, we should own that because we got a jillion dollar judgment against you. So it ended up uh, that family published it. I think the Goldman family published it. And if you look at the cover of it, it says, I did it. And then there's a tiny if. Like, it's like so small. <laughs> it's like microscopic. Okay. You can barely see the if. It's like, I did it by OJ Simpson. Anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, well, that might, I could see that happening from, from prison. I mean, Trump would totally be the kind of person who would want to do like a live Zoom from his, you know, prison cell and, 
you know, whatever, f- fire different prison yeah. guards or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just think that that guy, like, there's so much, like, three-dimensional and four-dimensional chess people ascribe to that guy. And I just think so much of it is just, like, him being a dumbass. Checkers. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's not even, it's like him eating the pieces. It's just, like, stupid stuff. And I think, like, he's he's, you know, he's survived this long because... He does really novel, bizarre things that like don't fit within particular statutes. Or he was the president, and or social norms, or whatever, or, or the law. Yeah, yeah. whatever, <laughs> something goofy. And like, but now, like you know, he's found this is like something that is just so straightforward that he kind of effed himself. I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I just think he's so dumb about certain things. Like he's clearly not uh, a, a genius when it comes to legal strategy. Uh, I could be wrong. But we'll see. So, Asha, I've heard now. You, I talked. I talked in the last segment about my super secret conversation that I've had with some journalists. I can't repeat. I've also have some, some of my my you know cone of silence is around me, but I have also heard rumors that you may be getting some new job soon. I heard something about that. Yeah, a new gig. A new gig. A, a new, new gig. gig. I, I'm still at Yale, and I'll stay at Yale. But um, I may be returning to your screen um, as a as a regular commentator. And I can't. I don't want to say anything just yet until you know the ink is dry. But um, I'm excited about it. It's always nice to have a home with you know a a network. And um, one of the things that I've been kind of doing and sort of on call for is to be ready to talk about the Supreme Court decisions that are being handed down. And there's, you know, a number of them that are on deck. Um, I was kind of I was like, wait, and it's it's hard because it's like I feel like a soccer goalie. You know what yeah. I mean? I'm because you don't know it's going to come. They're, it's like Thursday morning, and they're dropping, and I'm on Scotus blog, just like waiting for like what's <laughs> dropping. And there's a number of decisions. I mean, I think a couple of weeks ago it was like 44 that they still had it to hand down, and now it's like in the mid 30s or something. And I mean, it's not that many that are national news focused, you know. But there are right. quite a number, and so you know you're waiting for those. And so I just thought I could give like a quick rundown of what we're waiting to to hear and just like the big the cases, what the big issue is, whatever your thoughts are on it. Yeah, um, there's some big ones. I, yeah. I have thoughts on one in particular or a couple a group of one of ones in particular. But let's let's hear. So what are you the most interested in this term? I if if it's not what I'm thinking of, I'm gonna be surprised. I bet we're we're gonna be on the same wavelength with this one. Um I think mm. I am right now most interested in the affirmative action case. Okay. There you go. I was like the end of affirmative action. I yeah. think. And don't you think that's inevitable at this point? I, I think it's inevitable. I mean, I, right. my question is right now, just how it, how the opinion will be worded. Like in other words, what right. exactly it will proscribe, not whether it's, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty much a fait accompli that it's going to proscribe it. This is students for fair admissions versus Harvard. Um, and UNC, uh, they're basically two different cases. Um, the UNC case is uh, a 14th Amendment challenge that the consideration of race violates the Equal Protection Clause. And the Harvard case 
is based on Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And I should note there's obviously an important difference between those two institutions because UNC is a state school, so it's an, the government that's Correct. engaging in this activity versus Harvard's a private institution. And, you know, governments, obvi- you know, they have to be more careful about uh, making decisions that take into account things like race, gender, et cetera. Private institutions usually have a lot more freedom to do that. Um, and, but it's interesting. I mean, I, I know a lot about the Harvard case because my co-clerk, uh, it was the lead, one of the, it was the lead trial lawyer for that case, a right wing, oh, wow. uh, right wing lawyer who, and I, so I've been heard about that case for years, uh, from him. And, you know, this is a sort of, this is a kind of right wing activism. You know, when you and I were in law school, Asha, we heard all these stories about, you know, impact litigation in the 50s and 60s that amazing lawyers like Thurgood Marshall or Ruth Bader Ginsburg and others brought um, to move, uh, you know, to move rights forward and, and make our society more inclusive. This is sort of the opposite, right? The, the right doing this sort of like some of the impact stuff that they were doing in the abortion uh, front, similar. Yeah, I was just saying, like, this is about, like, the origin litigation is to reverse some of the, in my opinion, the progress that was made um, during the 60s and 70s on things like reproductive rights and civil rights and all of that stuff. Um, This would clearly upend, you know, existing jurisprudence and how um, schools consider uh, race and admissions. The precedent here is Grutter versus Bollinger, which is a 2003 case that held that University of Michigan could use race as a part of an effort to create a diverse student body, that it could be one factor um, that could be considered. And interestingly, Sandra Day O'Connor in that case uh, says somewhere in there in the dicta that this kind of consideration won't be necessary in 25 years. Um, so it's, you know, we're 19 yeah. years later and I, I suspect that, 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 that will come back to haunt, um, this case in some way, you know, like that, that somehow we're post-racial and, and it's not necessary maybe, or, um, and, and for sure that, that this idea of considering race is itself. And what's really interesting here is I was reading some of the, I didn't listen to the oral arguments at the time, but I was reading kind of the breakdown of the discussion. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it does get to like these intangibles of like, how do you define diversity? How do you know when it's been achieved? Um, and really, you know, this, and there's another case later that I, that I'll mention about the Voting Rights Act. You know, when you're looking at something like the 14th Amendment, which bars the consideration of race, those are can also be thought of as sort of affirmative action amendments, right? I mean, they were trying, they were amendments that were trying to, and this is the 14th, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, all these reconstruction amendments, were trying to correct for the racial inequality and disparity that existed at the time. And so there is like a question of whether are these really race blind? Like, is the 14th Amendment truly asking for something race blind or is it is it actually you know um contemplating some sort of corrective action i don't know and i think it's that's just a very different approach to how you you view that um the idea of equal protection 
given when it was passed and what it was trying to do. Right. And it certainly was a very massive effort in reconstruction to try to take affirmative steps to undo, obviously, massive uh, um, subjugation and inequality and 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 harm that was done. Um, but of course, it was cut. It was cut short very quickly. Uh, I, I will say, too, um, that, uh, you know, w- w- the, one of the things that is unfortunate here is I think. Um, some of the facts with Harvard, Harvard, I think, in terms of, some, you know, you're saying you are a former uh, admissions uh, person yourself. Um, they, they made they had a lot of internal statements and communications about Asian Americans that I think were unfortunate. And that made the trial record such that it, and I think it's going to make it um, easier for the the right uh, to, you know, uh, have a pretty radical undoing of affirmative action. And I agree with you that we're going to hear something of, about it's it, the time has ended, sort of like they did with, I think you mentioned the Voting Rights Act. They yeah. There's a provision that they rolled back and they basically said, hey, it was a great idea 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but right. not necessary now, right? Yeah, and, and that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point about the Asian Americans. Like the, the claim here is that affirmative action is discriminating against Asians. Right. Um, that's the claim in these cases. And so it's, again, I mean, I, I, you know, it's a very clever way, I guess, to bring these cases, because they're not claiming discrimination against whites. They're using, you know, the alleged discrimination against another minority group as sort of the basis for the claim. Is how in these impact cases you choose a very particular plaintiff that's a big piece of it. Okay. It, it, you know, and it was done in many other cases, you choose a very carefully chosen plaintiff and you shape the facts a certain way. Like I said, I mean, part of what happened here was just Harvard, you know, was not doing what, if, if their system resembled what O'Connor contemplated in Grutter, it would have been a much harder case for the right, right? If they were looking at a bunch of factors mm-hmm. and it was very amorphous and and things like that, but there was just certain codes and numbers that they had that were very, mm. um, very hard, and they had certain, um, I wouldn't say pejorative, but they had certain labels that they would put on Asian Americans that were not positive and that would result in lower scores, and so it just it, it made it, I think, a uh, an easier case for the right to do what I think is, ine- as you suggested, is inevitable. Uh, there'll be a rollback. Well, I'm just. Well, I'm just so confused by this case because one time Ann Coulter tweeted in response to something completely unrelated that I had I had said, not even to her, uh, that I only got into Princeton because of affirmative action. And now I'm super confused because apparently, like, Asians are discriminating against. Like, what is it? Which one is it? I have no idea. Oh, my God. Um, anyway, crazy. so... Um, I blocked her after that. <laughs> anyway, so let's move on. I'll just quickly go through sure. like just a, a few of the cases. So there's Biden versus Nebraska. This is the debt relief mm-hmm. case. Um, these are six states challenging the debt relief plan by the Department of Education, um, which is based on the HEROES Act, which was passed after 9-11, that allows the Secretary of Education to respond to a national emergency so borrowers are not worse off. 
Uh, they can waive or modify, quote unquote, existing provisions, loan provisions. And so Biden essentially created a plan that would forgive up to $20,000 of debt. Right. And the the suit that the states are bringing um, is, uh, I think, led by the state of Missouri, which is representing the Missouri Higher Ed Loan Authority, um, which services student loans across the country. And so there's a big standing issue here is whether states have standing to bring suits on behalf of the loan authority. In other words, like mm-hmm. what's the injury to the state? So there's that whole piece. Um, and then there's a question of whether in forgiving this, this is essentially a grant mm-hmm. that's being given to people. And is that essentially um, violating Congress's appropriation authority? In other words, does Biden have the authority to to give a grant? And so it's, it's kind of a, they're interesting actually legal questions. Um, but that's, you know, obviously a lot of people's loan forgiveness is on the hook. There's also, I think, something separate that uh, uh, some separate cases that are brought by individuals who essentially claim that they didn't benefit fully or at all under the criteria that Biden mm-hmm. has. And to me, that's just like it seems like a whiny <laughs> claim. <laughs> like, I mean, isn't that true of anything? Like, sure. I get that. I don't That's know. fair. That, so that part hasn't gotten as far as I can tell. And I think in the, even the arguments, it didn't get as much attention as the standing and the other parts of it. Right. So I think a lot of people are waiting to hear about that one. Um, then there's Moore versus Harper. This is the independent state legislature That's huge. case. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. So this is a case about whether a state judiciary can nullify election regulations based on the state constitution. And the issue here is that the federal constitution has an elections clause, which basically gives state legislatures the power to determine the time, place, manner of elections. And so the question really is whether the judicial I guess any kind of judicial involvement in that is somehow a violation of that the elections clause of the federal constitution. I would frame it differently. Okay. And here, okay. So here's yeah. how I would frame it. Your the constitution permits the states to run elections. Mm-hmm. They use the term state legislatures. Yeah. That has always been understood to be that states administer elections in accordance with state law, Correct. which is sort of how states do things in accordance right. with their own laws. <laughs> right. There's a branch, a very, I would say, an aggressive right-wing reading that a lot of people on the conservative side do not um do not uh, agree with like ju- and Judge Ludig, I think, is one of the people who's been very, again, you know, very vocal about this. But basically, who uh, against this? Basically, there's this 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 strand that says state legislatures are effectively like executives, like full authority. Yes. They're, they're like super powered. They can do whatever they want, even violate the state constitution. Right. So if the state constitution says we're going to you have to give the state's electoral votes to whoever won the popular election, the state legislature could say we ignore 
the state laws, the state constitution, because we, the legislature, have voted that Donald Trump should get our our votes or something along those lines. And then the state courts cannot do anything about right. it. That's the key. Correct, because they're like in other gods. words, no one you can't you can't take that to court and have say that violates our state con- the state constitution. So the issue here is a n- partisan gerrymander in North Carolina, and initially the state supreme court, which had a Democratic majority said that it was barred by the state constitution and violated the guarantee to a free and fair election that was contained in the North Carolina legislature. Then after that, people may not know this, like in, you know, states, most state judges are elected. The the state Supreme Court justices were elected. After the election, there was a Republican majority on the state Supreme Court, which then reheard the case and threw out the old decision. Um, and so, you know, I guess there is also that issue of, you know, you have these partisan courts. But um, anyway, so that's that's sort of like the the backdrop of of what's happening there. That's a usually important case in the long run, not in this particular decision. It's not doesn't really it's not yeah. going to move the needle. But if the independent state legislature doctrine you know, becomes, you know, the law of the land and the Supreme Court blesses that. I just think it makes it easier for there to be shenanigans uh, from state legislatures in relation to our you national think? elections. Yeah. How? How? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And we might invite them to the White House, for example, right? Our state legislatures. The, 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 one of the beauties of, you know, of that, those attempts were that there were all these other state officials and go- courts and so on that could be a backdrop, right? That, you know, all, you know, sometimes you're going to have a state where everything lines up in a certain partisan direction and everybody in that state agrees. But the more, you know, the more that you have separation of powers and, you know, uh, legal process, it gives an opportunity for, you know, arguments to be heard and re- and reasonable people to hear evidence and not, you know, put a stop to something that would, you know, be pr- very highly problematic. Yeah. So we're definitely keeping an eye on that. And I mean, it, it seems like that just to, just to quickly dovetail that with January 6th and kind of the fake electors, it those seem a little bit separate, right? I mean... It mm-hmm. still wouldn't have allowed, like, even if a court were to embrace this, like, submitting a fake set of electors would be still illegal. That's right. Although there are certain state laws that prescribe how electors are um, are assigned, and you know, obviously, those state laws can be changed by legislatures anyway, but. Um, I would think without judicial review, I suppose the United States Supreme Court could still take a look at that, but uh, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's not exactly a vote of confidence. <laughs> it's not exactly a vote of confidence. So I think that I just think that, um, you know, the, the, this reading period, I mean, uh, there, you know, a lot of really, uh, you know, s- smart people like Judge Ludig think that this this, I'd say, um, unusual reading of the clause is not accurate. But regard, you know, however it turns out, um, I think that if the, you know, independent state legislature clause, or excuse me, theory is adopted by the Supreme Court, it's a concern because the people pushing it, I think they seem like they have an agenda to do, to use that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. For something. I agree. 
Then there's an interesting case, uh, 303 Creative versus Alanis. And this is a wedding website designer who doesn't want to make websites for same-sex couples. Right. It's like a follow-on from the last, from the cake. Okay, yeah. Okay, same state, from state Colorado cake. too, yeah. right? I think so, if I recall correctly. And, and, but I think this is a speech yep. issue. That was a religious freedom issue. Right? It was basically, yeah, it was performative. Like you didn't, you were like, hey, I'm performing a service, but I don't want to perform that service or, you know, or basically I don't want to sell to gay couples. This is yeah. a little different. It's about what. Huh. This is, a, this is about speech. So Colorado law prohibits businesses from discriminating against LGBTQ people. And so the question is, is saying that this website designer has to create the website compelled speech. In other words, is it, you know, and, and she, the website designer says, I'm not, I'm not saying I don't want to make the website because of who is asking me. I'm saying that I don't want to make the website because of the message that it's, they're asking me to create. In other words, presumably, if a heterosexual couple came and was like, love is love, like gay marriage or whatever, and that's what they wanted on their website, presumably her argument is she would say no to that. Right. Because she's against the message, not the messenger. Um, yes. I, I will say it, it just it, it rings a lot like the cake because the, it's the same, so, same Colorado law, but uh, Kate, the cake case, because they're similar. It was like, well, creating this cake is like an artistic expression you know um mm -hmm. because you can create this and having this certain expression of having two grooms on the cake you know whatever this is much more i would say i will say this is much more core speech and mm -hmm. just for everyone listening uh, you know the reason that it's a really thorny case is the court uh general supreme court takes speech issues very seriously and tends to invalidate any government law that is trying to force people to say things that they don't want to say yeah, and it is just really interesting, right? Like, you know, in making this website, are they compelling her speech? Because, you know, some of this was coming out in the argument. Like, you know, because the the website designer was arguing, like, you know, you're making me invite people to celebrate this you know, thing that I don't agree with or whatever. But it's like she's just being instructed to design the website on behalf of this. In other words, is, is it really compelling her speech? You know, I guess was part was what it seemed like one of the threads that was being pulled on. Well, one of the interesting things under the law that maybe our listeners will find interesting is that writing software code is typically seen as speech. In fact, it's copyrighted as expressive. Interesting. And okay. so that's, it's the reason why, uh, the software industry has essentially limitless or close to limitless, pro, you know, intellectual mm -hmm. property. Yeah, intellectual yeah. property protection over their products. They're not like patents that expire in a fairly short period of time, and and you know they you can you know essentially infringe get a re, with a you get a reason, reasonable royalty. It's different um, in the world of copyright, and so um, yeah, because the idea is that somebody coding is making all these expressive choices as if they were, you know, writing a novel or something along those lines. So mm -hmm. very interesting. Uh, I, I would also put this in the bucket of um, right, right wing 
you know, impact litigation. This was a carefully chosen plaintiff by uh, a right wing uh, legal organization to try to move the needle on that type of uh, case. Yes. And just to bring it all home on that same theme, um, the last one I think that we're kind of looking out for is Merrill versus Milligan. But this is about the Voting Rights Act um, and whether Alabama's congressional map uh, violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits denial of the right to vote based on race. And essentially, what this this map dilutes, it only creates one black majority district even though 27% of the population. Um, so basically they're, they're all packed into one district and the rest are diluted across all of the others. And I'm not an expert in kind of map drawing or whatever, but the, the, the question is sort of whether, whether this, the approach to drawing district maps, I guess needs to be race blind. In other words, whether kind of looking at the outcome of whether of of kind of if it's diluting votes or or packing vote packing people into a district kind of vi- itself is violative because it is considering race. It's a little bit like to me it's like a weird cousin of the affirmative action case in a way. It's like kind of turning the idea of it's using the 14th Amendment and turning it on its head by like using this idea of race blindness to allow for, I, I don't know, for, for a way that, uh, I guess, discrimin- discriminatory outcomes or impact. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, just so, just to give some background to our listeners, the Supreme Court has decided that you can engage in partisan gerrymandering all you want. So you can literally pack all the Democrats into one district where they win 100 to 1, 100 to, 100 to 0 or 99 to 1, and then have all of the Republicans spread out winning 55, 45 and all the other districts that create, you know, nine Republican districts and one Democrat district, even though maybe it's 60, 40 in the state or something along those lines. Totally super permissible, according to the United States Supreme Court. But you can't um, try to dilute the voting power of, let's say, black people or Latinos or whatever um, and and set out to do that. The, the, the uninteresting thing about Alabama is that I suspect, or I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I believe that most, uh, you know, huge percentage of Democratic voters are black, and black voters in in Alabama vote heavily Democratic. Correct. And so I I imagine, without re- recalling the details of the specific case, that the defense is like, "Hey, we're just trying to screw the Democrats. We don't care that these people are black. We're just trying to pack all the Democrats in, and they happen to be black people." Uh, that's the right. And so, I, yeah, I don't yeah, know exactly I think how that, that's going to turn out. Yeah. And I think the, the the other issue here is that there were, and this kind of gets to the similarities with affirmative action or even abortion is that there's pretty mm-hmm. well established jurisprudence True. on Section two of the Voting Rights Act on how it should be interpreted. So basically. The appellate court 
was a three-judge panel, including two that were appointed by Trump, which said that it violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And the Supreme Court, in an uh, in one of its like you know unsigned orders, basically put that decision, stayed mm-hmm. that decision, allowing the map to go into effect for the twenty twenty two election. Interesting. The, the, the shadow docket. Um, it worked. The Congress. The shadow docket. So I'm reading about this in Steve Vladek's book. Um, and so, you know, before ruling on the merits of the case, in other words. The merits by, by the way, a predominantly Republican appointed Trump appointed panel said, based on how we have looked at cases like this before, this is a violation of the Voting Rights Act. You can't you can't pack, you know, all of the Mm -hmm. black voters into one and then disperse them everywhere else. Um, And normally, if that's the established jurisprudence. You would not, I mean, you would allow that to stand and then hear the case on the merits. And if you're going to overturn right. it, overturn it, right? They stayed the decision that is actually based on established precedent and jurisprudence without giving any explanation why. Allowing, you know, this whatever n- new interpretation to go into effect for the last election. And then presumably, I guess they're going to now explain it. But, you know, one has to assume that that's signaling like where they're going with this, but it is a really weird way. And it kind of gets to what he calls a shadow docket, which are ways in which they are profound. The Supreme court is increasingly profoundly affecting the substance of the law and the outcomes that come out of it without ever explaining or taking accountability with a reasoned opinion um, on why they're doing that. Which is the way that the, the Supreme Court has always worked. In other words, there are written decisions that set forth the reasoning of the Supreme Court, and everyone has to sign their name to those. And at times, it can I can, I think, move the law in certain directions because there's a saying, at least when I was a clerk, they'd say, this doesn't write. And it's just something being so uh, a contrary to the law that you just can't even write you know, created opinion that makes any sense uh, that holds that view. And so, you know, this allows them to sort of duck um, that requirement to explain right. themselves. It, it, it evades a really fundamental part of democracy, which is accountability, right? And we have account of, you know, the, the voting booth is the way that we hold members of Congress and the president accountable. But the way that we hold life tenure justice of the Supreme Court accountable is that we make them explain you know, their math. Indeed. Like show their work, right? And there, and I think what Steve's argument is, and I think this is an example of it, is a way in which they're not showing their work. Right. There, and, and also a way in which they are subtly moving outcomes. I mean, in other words, it's possible they could ultimately agree with the panel below that this was violative, but they, there was an election that took place that, exactly. that, generated a result in the, in the short term that is contrary to that. Right. So Asha, um, obviously we're, we're both um, in boring places now, but I was checking out your Instagram and I saw that you were in Princeton. 
was pretty cool. Yeah. I was assuming it was Princeton. You were all in orange. So I, I was all in orange. Bright orange. I can't it's imagine another reason why you wear that. Yeah. Why you wear that color. Yeah. Unless you're a snow, uh, like a traffic cone or Prin- something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do have, um, a, you know, statistically improbable amount of orange in my wardrobe because whenever what? I. Yeah, whenever I see anything orange, I buy it so that I might be able to wear it to Princeton or to Princeton reunions. There you um, go. And Princeton reunions is a really interesting phenomenon. Um, you know, you go back not just for your big like five years, but you go back on off years. So this was an off year reunion Whoa. for me. Yeah, um, it is apparently the largest beer consuming activity in the United States after the Indy Five Hundred. Seriously? Yeah. Um, okay. Wow. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize people in Princeton drank a lot of beer. Yeah, actually, uh, okay. John Stossel, when I was in college, did a twenty twenty on it. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. I remember that guy. He's like this, like libertarian yeah. guy. I remember and him. a Princeton yeah. grad. Um, so yeah, so it's just like a crazy. I I was saying to a call a, a friend of mine, a classmate of mine, that basically I think Princeton reunions are just one big psyop because <laughs> they bring you back. They make you wear these ridiculous costumes or jackets um, mm-hmm. on orange and black. So they kind of like equalize you. It's sort of like a weird, like whatever you were at prison, like now everybody looks the same and you're wearing like, you know, sure. some, uh, you know, there's some theme, sure. you know, uh, costume. I mean, they're literally costumes um, okay. or jackets. And so you're all the same and you're all ridiculous. And um, then they, you basically like drink a lot. And so over time, your memories of time at Princeton like sort of get, you know, a little hazy and, and you just remember your times like dancing under, you know, and, and and the bands and stuff. So the reunions themselves like have all these entertainment options. They've, they've tried to tone it back, but a f- several years ago, the 25th reunion, for example, had Bon Jovi. Wow. Yeah, and for New Jersey, that's like right, that's like, like what like Christ they, himself. You know, they've had like Joan the Jett and the Blackhearts, and they've had the uh, Beach Boys cool. come back, and like I mean, Duran Duran has right. got like so they, they've tried to tamp down on the big bands because it's creative security issues. But like you party, you dance, you meet people, it's like all fun, and so like over time, like twenty five years later, when they hit you up for money, you're like, ah, right, no, Princeton is amazing, and it was amazing. But like at this point, I remember more my time at reunions and connecting with people than I really do like what I was doing exactly like as an undergrad. So oh, your brain cells have been your brain cells have been destroyed. Yeah, it's brilliant. (laughs) It is truly brilliant. It's like the you know best alumni giving strategy. And when I was at Yale Law School, I tried to convince them of this. I was like, you guys bring these people back and like put on these panels. They do. For like three it's days. It's like a bunch of like, it's a bunch of like scholarly claptrap for a few days. And I was yeah. like, no one wants to go to panels, like, you know, or have a few panels. But then like, so actually the, one of the earliest times, one of my earliest years at Yale Law School for um, the alumni weekend, I convinced them to do a casino night. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It was I really fun. That. It was really fun. That sounds casino like Casino night with like swing dancing and. Sweet. Yeah. It, swing but, dancing. Uh, but okay. What? Casino night. Uh, Swing dancing. Well, like a swing band. Oh, okay. Okay. A swing band. I don't know swing dancing, but okay. I mean, you don't need to know swing dancing. You just, you can, you you can do like a box step, right? You can do a box step. 
Got it. Okay. Yeah. I think that's cool. That's way cooler. I went to my 25th year. This year I went to my 25th college reunion at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And was it panels? Lo- no, it was just like a, a dinner. There's like a bunch of activities all weekend long that are not class specific. And okay. so like, they're just like different fun-ish stuff. Although they had one, they had one, they had a lot of panels, like Jonathan Turley came and speak. I, I did not, oh, did not catch God. that. Oh my God, are you serious? Yeah. True story. I'm <gasps> like, they actually gave that guy a podium. Um, so no, so no interest in that, but a lot of different panels and stuff and beer gardens and whatever. I, I, um, but I went to the class dinner and it was like of our class of, you know, 800, 900 people, there was like 50 people there, you know, and it was really? just like, whatever. Yeah. Okay. It, it was very, and, and my, my Yale 20th year reunion was during the pandemic. So we had a zoom and then they never made Same it up here. Cause I was a class ahead of you. Mine yeah. Was, yeah. Mine they didn't was make it up for us. No, they did. And they, they were, they didn't, they didn't message it very well either. They basically were, it was like a secret thing. Like they told us they were going to make it up. And then when the year came by, a bunch of us asked like, so are we doing it this year? Are we making it up? And they're like, uh, we don't have enough space. Sorry. Let me tell you. And I'm, I know I work at Yale, but I no longer work at the Yale, Yale law school. And so I'm speaking as an alumna. Yale Law School reunions are terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry, but they suck. This is an extra long episode because we have a lot of struggle pays about reunions. Yeah. Okay, I can't wait to. <laughs> I, I, you got to explain this now. And I they are, they are like gonna... I said, like I literally had to convince them to do something fun, and they did it, and it was like so outside their comfort zone. They reverted back. I mean, one year I think when we were there, they did do, they did like a moot court with Hamlet. Like they brought. Oh. Do you remember this? Like we, because I no, had produced the cool. I had produced the Merchant of Venice in the law school courtyard, and so inspired by that, they had like a scene of Hamlet, and then they brought in some. They did basically a moot court. They brought in some judges, and they had like David Kendall and I forget who else argue like whether uh, Hamlet should be convicted of murder or something like that. So something fun, okay. like it was kind of goofy, but also like fun. Yeah. So if you're going to be dorky, like just do something fun, but they can't do it. It's just, it's just a disaster. I'm sorry. Yale law and it's school super reunions expensive. are basically a bunch of panels. A I bunch don't of go panels. back to Yale Law School reunions. And I literally well, work at Yale. Already. I know. I went when I was, <laughs> I went when I worked at the law school and it was free, but like, I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. Wow. I, I like going back to see all my old friends and stuff. It was a great time in my life. Um, the panels are just whatever. I view them as like, they're trying to like networking opportunities. It's just very serious. Too serious. Um, a little serious, but whatever. It they is need what fun. They need karaoke. I agree. I'm telling you, if I were in charge of Yale Law School reunions, giving would go, like attendance would go up, giving would go up. You know, we, would you do it? At, you could, do you even need to do it at Yale? If you want to make it really fun, you went on a cruise ship or something. Totally. We could have like, Totally. Instead of the love boat, the Yale boat. Yeah, just the Yale like, boat. You know. totally. <laughs> <laughs> Unlimited drinks, and we could have a casino on the boat. And this is what I'm talking about. Thank you, you Renato. You're seeing my vision. There we go. M S W Media.
Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. 